You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Two for Tea, and I'm your host, Iona Italia. I'm coming to you today from Aldeburgh in Suffolk. I'm living here for two months, um, and then I'll be back in London in my usual home. And my guest today is coming to us from Brisbane, and his it's uh, his name is Jamie Freestone. He is currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Queensland. And uh, Jamie has a background in literature and literary theory, but now he studies um, not how narratives can be used to communicate science, especially evolutionary science. He is writing a book about the meaning of science. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. And um, he's also working on an audio, a non-fiction audio series on um, eccentric billionaires and their plans for how to reboot civilization following an apocalypse. Um, I'm just watching I, uh, the the um, iPlayer dramatization of or the Apple dramatization of Isaac Asimov's foundation series at the moment. So I'm imagining something along those lines when I read that. And uh, yeah, welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much uh, for having me, Iona. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be here. And I also wanted to say thank you uh, for your editorship of Ario magazine, um, which has not only been a home for my writing, but something I really enjoy reading. And I think what you and um, your predecessor, Helen Pluckrose, have done with it is um, a really great thing. Thank you so much. Um, that means a lot to me. I will put the put links to your ARIO articles also in the show notes, as I usually do with our writers. But let's see uh, where to begin. So you have you're you're quite a polymath, and you have a a number of overlapping interests. But the um, the sort of the overarching thread that coheres them that makes them all cohere is your interest in narrative and in the kinds of implications of science for our worldviews, I guess would be the right way to put it. Um, maybe we could begin there with your the book that you're writing on science. And I'm going to uh, quote a little bit from a blog entry that you've written about that book. In my search for meaning, I've often wound up in the philosophy of science, the analytic tradition, and science studies, the continental tradition. But even then, both of these disciplines fixate on epistemology. How can we know things are true or false? How are we deluding ourselves, etc.? For my brand of scepticism, that's not the main game. If there's no danger of being utterly convinced by any knowledge, then the question of how you can be certain of something is moot anyway. 
But what of the implications of scientific ideas? Forget for a moment how much confidence we have we can have in Darwinism, string theory, or the out of Africa hypothesis. We have to behave as if they're good ideas, at least provisionally. So what do these things mean for our lives? Having come from a literature background, this is how I approach everything. Why study literature? For one, enjoyment, and two, to think about life. The whole thing, all of its layers mixed up together. For me, it's ditto for science. If you think you can safely cordon off all ethical, moral, political implications of scientific knowledge, you are going to hate almost all modern science, which shouts at us that some of the things we most cherish don't even exist. Souls, ghosts, reincarnation, and that others are radically unlike what we think they are. Stars, germs, consciousness. And that there are whole new things that were never imagined, but which might impact our lives. DNA, clathrates, um, dark matter. If you don't think how to live is dependent on the nature of the world we live in, then maybe you're a psychopath. Aggressive, I know, but that's what we call someone whose actions and choices are entirely insulated from the reality in which they're embedded. The physics says the world is nothing like what it seems. This doesn't just undermine traditional ways of knowing, but also what is believed by most people today who call themselves materialists, scientists, naturalists, atheists, rationalists, etc. Not not that it in any way validates spiritual, religious or Deepak Chopra-y worldviews either. I think the nature of reality at a very fundamental level is simply unlike any previous imaginings and no existing worldview really aligns with it. Compounding this weirdness is the fact that our minds and consciousness are also nothing like what they seem. This one is even harder to accept because we feel like we can be deluded about the world, but that we can't be wrong about the subject that is deluded, that there is an irreducible or unshakable fact of subjectivity or first personhood. But I think it is precisely this familiar self-subject experiencer that is negated by modern brain science. Again, I think believers and non-believers alike are unprepared for the real implications of this. And I think later in this piece you quote, um, I can't remember who it is who calls this, the semantic apocalypse. Um, So would you like to tell me a a bit more about how your approach to science differs from classic history and philosophy of science and um, how it differs from the views of um, someone like Liam Kofi Bright, who is interested in how and why scientists lie, for example, that's at the heart of Liam's work. And what drew you to this new approach and what you're hoping to do with the book? That, sorry, there's a very open-ended question. Start wherever you like it and go for it. We'll, we'll do. There's, there's plenty to touch on. And thank you for uh, reading out that, that quotation. I think that frames my ideas pretty well. That's, that's what I'm interested in at the moment. Uh, it's also nice to be described as a polymath uh, rather than a jack of all trades and a master of none, which is my usual designation. So thanks too for that. Uh, but I guess my approach to science has crystallized recently around this question of meaning, because for a long time, I worked as a uh, science communicator. And so I was someone who would uh, try and, you know, 
make science digestible for the general public. Uh, I worked in radio where I would present, you know, weekly science news, that type of thing, which certainly has its place. People find science stories interesting. Uh, and there's, you know, a certain kind of role that takes complicated scientific information and then translates it into some chunks that, that people can enjoy as part of a radio broadcast or something like that. And I'm not saying anything against that approach, what we would call science outreach or science communication, but I just found it a little bit boring and probably other people did it much better than I did. And that kind of got me thinking about why I was interested in science in the first place. Uh, if I wasn't particularly interested in just sort of uh, translating it or propagating it. And what got me interested in it was, as, as uh, indicated by that quotation, was really the same reason I got interested in the arts, which is where I started. I started in English literature. And I realized I was looking for the same thing in the sciences. And I didn't really discriminate between these different discourses or these different fields of inquiry. I just thought, well, I'm a person trying to figure out how to live in a complex and weird reality. Uh, and I will take answers wherever I can get them. And so there was no reason to me to not look for that in poetry as well as looking for that in the latest findings in cosmology or something like that. And it, it took quite a few years and a PhD and, and a lot of reading to, to find the intellectual confidence, I guess, to try and define my own question that I was trying to answer or my own approach to this. And so it's really only the last few years when I've been trying to write this book that I'm working on that uh, I've found a way to frame that as, as looking at the results of modern science in terms of what they say for meaning or purpose in our lives. And obviously, those are very lofty questions. Um, but I, I do think that no one has really investigated modern science from, from that point of view. I mean, other people have, but no one has really uh, put it all in one book that I would like to read. And so I'm in that classic position of trying to write the book that I would personally like to read. And so that's what I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, you, um, in one of the articles that of yours that I've read, which was about uh, Darwinism as a worldview, one of the things that you point out is that there is a line of thinking which says um, you can't get an ought from an is, and therefore science is just is facts about the world, um, and it shouldn't have or doesn't have implications for your ethical or even, um, I'm going to put some really very large inverted commas around this kind of spiritual <laughs> um, view, your view of um the meaningfulness of life and, and your life. And however, nevertheless, in general, um, many scientists themselves don't talk in that way. I've spoken to several evolutionary biologists um, on here, Richard Dawkins, Jerry Coyne, um, David Sloan Wilson, all three of them, and Steve, um, Stuart Williams, I think. Yes, Steve Stuart Williams. Yes. They talk really in, um, either implicitly or in David Sloan Wilson's term, uh, terms explicitly of a view of life, a way of looking at life or 
Darwinism provides the most important explanation for not just how, but why things are as they are. And it's impossible not to see that as also a kind of guiding vision. Yeah, um, well, certainly those authors you mentioned are, well, David Sloan Wilson in particular is happy to come out and actually say that uh, you can get an ought from an is, as it were, and uh, that you can use this Darwinian or evolutionary framework for understanding the natural world. You can use it as something that will inform ethics, politics, social policy, as he advocates in his latest book. Uh, and you're right that these practitioners, uh, these scientists themselves, aren't particularly worried about contravening some kind of is-ought or fact-value uh, rule that has been put in place by philosophers. And so I also think that probably most ordinary people, if they've ever thought about this kind of thing, don't think that there's some kind of magical dividing line that separates comments, statements, books, papers, whatever, about how the world is from uh, the implications for how they should live their life in terms of ethics, politics, and spirituality in inverted commas or not. And so it, it really is, I think, the philosophers and the other kind of gatekeepers of science, like people who study science communication and the rhetoric of science and a lot of these other disciplines that I've mentioned I've never really felt at home in. They're the ones who, who typically enforce this division. And they do so for entirely respectable reasons, by the way. And I'm familiar with the the literature on the fact-value dichotomy and uh, certainly at least within uh, the, the purview of analytic philosophy. So I'm across all of that. And for a long time, I probably adhered to some kind of intellectual position that endorsed it. But I, I now see it as a total red herring. Uh, and so I'm, I'm happy now to come out and <laughs> say that uh, it, it's not so much that you can simply derive an ought from an is, which is to say, if somebody presents you with some facts about how the world works, you can't that sort of add them up and, you know, carry the one and then figure out, ah, you know, abortion is wrong or abortion is right or something like that. It's not exactly like that. Uh, but I think that the, the idea that there are these two separate realms that somehow uh, never come into contact with one another, like non-overlapping Venn circles on a Venn diagram or something like that, or that there is the world of is, the world of facts, the world that science explains, and then there's some moral world that sort of creepily floats above it in some platonic ether or something like that. I think that vision is entirely wrong. And in fact, there is just one world and we can't really separate our actions, which take place in the same world uh, that biologists and physicists are describing with their quarks and cells and so forth. And so the idea of trying to enforce some strict partition between these two realms is foolish. And in fact, there is only one realm, or maybe there's maybe there's infinite realms, I don't know, but the, it seems like whatever informs our actions, whatever we decide is right and wrong or a good or bad way to live, has to be emanating from the same world that the sciences are talking about. And so I've mm. uh, no doubt alienated myself from a lot of people whose profession, particularly philosophers, whose profession involves enforcing this dichotomy. Uh, but I'm, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm very happy to do so. And, and as you pointed out, my recent blog post kind of explains uh, some of the rationale behind this. And that recent article I had published about worldviews 
or Darwinism as a worldview uh, did get some pushback. So I'm already um, seeing that that you know I'm touching on some intellectual orthodoxies here, but uh, I'm very happy to continue to do so. It it seems to me that um, I guess what people are afraid of is that you will develop your moral views first, have some moral intuitions, and then you will try to uh, find facts to support those intuitions, and therefore you will be bending the facts, um, distorting the facts to fit your preferences. And of course, the universe isn't arranged for our moral convenience. But that seems to me very different from allowing your moral intuitions to be informed by what you know about the world. And that, so for, uh, to take a couple of really simplistic, um, examples, I think, um, um, communism is wrong because it goes against, um, human nature. And, um, that's informed by what I understand or maybe misunderstand about evolved human psychology. And I think fascism is wrong because of what I understand about um, human ancestry and the fact that we all share a common ancestry going back in time. Um, so those are both, in a sense, political judgments and also moral intuitions that are are based on an understanding of science. Right. Well, you, you have brought us to the pointy end here, I see. Uh, I, I mean, also, you... <laughs> you um, you do put your finger on something important, uh, I think, because philosophers are afraid that, uh, you know, people will look at the theory of evolution, let's say, and then conclude that we should have some horrible eugenics program. Uh, and, and in that way, they will be deriving an ought from an is. They'll look at how the world is and then say, therefore, we should, you know, do some horrible thing like what the you know, Nazis did or, or whatever. Um, and yet it is more frequently that it goes the other way, that people have preconceived moral and political ideas, which they then project onto the world and then pick and choose among scientific findings that may or may not support their worldview. Now, I guess in either case, uh, it, it, it's, it, it goes against what these philosophers would say is the right way to do it. They would say that these, these two things just cannot ever mix. But I think that examining a question like whether or not communism is a good system of government I, th I think that your your formula is is a much better one because uh, if it, if your answer to that question is not based on your best ideas about how the world is, then it really isn't clear what they're based on. Well, I mean, it is clear because they'll be based on you know cognitive biases and cultural ideas and political propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. But if it's not grounded in in some kind of reasonably good idea about how people have acted in the past trying to use that as a way to predict how they might act in the future, then then you're facing an uphill battle. And so questions of communism and fascism, I mean, I, I don't I, I, I mean, I don't like them either. I'm not sure if I'm ready to point to a particular scientific theory that rules them out. But I, your point on the nature of humans, I think, is the place where you should look to answer such a question, yes. I'm not sure how to segue between these topics, but <laughs> I sort of want to go on to the next topic, um, which is uh, what you have to say about narrative, because I'm sure this will circle back because you have a lot to say also about 
how we use narrative to communicate science. And I, th- I think we should, we'll, we'll get onto that. But, um, I, I am, um, completely fascinated by your, your analysis of the way that narrative works within, within fictions and the way in which this both can be explained by cognitive science and also offers insights into the evolutionary development of cognition. So you have a really extraordinary piece. Um, I was absolutely blown away by this article. Uh, Great. (laughs) um, It's uh, called, is it called Narrative is Agents Acting at a Distance? Um, Yes. And there's a, a kind of nomic little statement that I think sums it up, which I've just retweeted, so let me find that. Uh, yeah, any popular narrative form is a super normal stimulus for our twin capacities of mind reading and mental time travel. Okay, for our listeners, explain that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, this this will all connect up at the end. Um, yes, it will. Uh, and and the the way I've tried to summarize my research program, at least to funding bodies, is that I I'm looking at the evolution of narrative, and then narratives of evolution, which hopefully connects some of my interests in a reasonably um, sloganistic way. But the uh, the article you're referring to is is my attempt at a kind of grand theory of what narrative actually is, and I found that I had to just immerse myself in a lot of cognitive science for a few years to try and figure it out because, believe it or not, this is actually a very uh, highly studied question and there's a vast literature of people from cognitive science uh, and also people from literary studies trying to get down to the essence of narrative, if you will. What is it that distinguishes one thing uh, that we would say is a narrative from some other thing that isn't? You know, what distinguishes a, a... you know, a crime novel from a shopping list. One of those things is obviously more narrative-like than the other. And this literature is vast, but not necessarily uh, all that worth reading. And in, in the end, I decided that possibly what they were doing wrong is that people were trying to get down to some minimal narrative. And they would say, well, Aristotle said that a narrative is anything with a beginning, middle, and an end. And then they would argue over whether or not the shopping list or the recipe fulfilled those criteria. And I just thought of, thought that was the wrong way around. And so instead, I tried to look at maximal narratives. What are the things out there that are unequivocally narratives, the things that are most story-like, uh, the sort of supernormal stimulus uh, that, that really engages our, our narrative receptors, whatever they might be. And so I looked at the most popular genres uh, in, in different art forms, things like TV sitcoms and, uh, you know, romance novels or crime novels or Marvel superhero movies, things that are clearly resonating with a very popular audience. They must be accessible. They must be digestible. They must be entertaining and engaging. They must compete for our attention and often win. And so whatever they're doing must, if we think they're narratives, they must be doing it well. And the traditional way of looking at this from a cognitive science point of view was to say that they must be engaging our theory of mind, which is our kind of intuitive, largely innate capacity to understand other people and essentially to treat other humans in particular, but also non-human things frequently, as though they are agents with 
desires and beliefs and motives and things like that. And that's often called theory of mind or folk psychology. Uh, some people call it the intentional stance. All, all of these things are roughly synonymous. And so the idea is that you have to have this capacity to understand what's happening in a story. And that would seem to be true. Uh, stories would be very confusing if you didn't have any kind of theory of mind. And so that's where a lot of researchers had landed, that that stories must be some kinds of representations, whether or not they're oral stories or written or whatever, that must tap into our theory of mind. Uh, certainly they require a theory of mind to understand and probably to compose as well, but they must be sort of satisfying it. And I just sort of thought that they were missing what is arguably to me the most crucial aspect of stories, particularly when you look at these popular genres, which is the fact that they are coherent. And what is meant by coherent here is that every single part of them, every scene within a movie uh, or every sentence within a short story is necessary to understand or comprehend the ending. And so if you look at an episode of a popular sitcom like Seinfeld, uh, which I did for, for this article, you know, it's a 22-minute TV show. Uh, there's several storylines that all intersect right at the end, at the denouement. And so you better believe that every single scene in that episode is absolutely necessary. Uh, if you take any one of those scenes out, the story wouldn't quite work. And if you added in any scenes, they would be superfluous in as much as you, they could be gotten rid of without losing that coherence and without losing that comprehension at the end of it. And so I thought, well, if that is the kind of uh, sine qua non or, or at least the crucial part of a maximal narrative, a really successful popular narrative, it must be quite important. And what mental faculty would allow us to uh, sort of understand that aspect of it, because clearly it's not just theory of mind working on its own. You certainly need the theory of mind to understand a character's motives and actions within a story, definitely. But you need something on top of that because you need to understand how these motives or plans or desires or whatever, how they carry on throughout the extended narrative, which will be 20 minutes long for a, a TV sitcom, but which you might have to sort of keep somewhere in your mind for months if you're reading a series of novels or watching a long-form TV show week to week on, on TV. And so I thought there must be some extra capacity that allows us to perceive these plans or desires of agents or characters as they leap across time. And the best candidate that I found from the, the cognitive science literature is this ability called mental time travel, which is uh, basically... Uh, there's two sides to it. One, one side is episodic memory. That is our ability to recall something from the past and kind of relive uh, a, a past episode. And then the flip side of that, which uses the same part of the brain, is foresight, where we can sort of imagine a potential future. We can you know, entertain uh, or simulate a possible scene that hasn't happened yet, but which might happen. And that capacity for both of those things thinking back to a past real event and then imagining a potential future one is called mental time travel. And I thought this was the best candidate for what it is that allows us to watch a narrative unfold. And as we get to the end of the narrative, let's say the denouement of the sitcom or the final episode of a TV show or whatever it is, there must be some ability to uh, understand when it has all come together neatly. That is, we comprehend when a narrative 
ties up, where a storyline develops the right way with no loose ends uh, and without any serious internal contradictions. It's extremely noticeable if a narrative does not fulfill these conditions. And so there must be some part of our brain that is able to retrospectively kind of make sure that it all fits and remember back to at least the the outline or the lineaments of earlier scenes or earlier episodes uh, to ensure that they agree with what we see at the climax. And so this ability to kind of um, join the dots uh, is mental time travel, I think. And so once you have mental time travel, the ability to join together all these different uh, scenes that have elapsed over time, uh, and that includes inferring connections between them uh, that weren't shown on screen or weren't actually written about on the page. Uh, you have to fill in the blanks, as it were. The ability to do that along with the theory of mind that we need to understand basically why anyone is doing anything in a given scene or episode, put those two things together and you get, I would argue, our ability to comprehend narrative and indeed the two key ingredients of a satisfying maximal narrative. That is, it is coherent. There's no gratuitous or unnecessary scenes and they all are necessary to understand the end. And uh, the action is led by agents' decisions, which is not my innovation, but even Aristotle in his work Poetics pointed out that the best plays are the ones where the uh, action unfolds according to people's deliberate or inadvertent plans rather than some crude use of deus ex machina or, or some outside influence. And so that's my, uh, that's my grand theory of narrative there, Iona, uh, in, in a nutshell. Mm, yeah, I was I, I have never watched Seinfeld, but throughout the episode, I just throughout the article, I just sub subbed in Babylon 5, whenever you <laughs> mentioned uh, Seinfeld, um, which, um, uh, you know, early episodes are complete in themselves but also foreshadow things that will happen later and will, will accrete new meaning as things happen later in the series. I think this is also very much a characteristic of especially good fictional works of art is that earlier episodes don't just illuminate later ones, um, but later episodes illuminate earlier ones. That 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 is that is a great point. So that and uh, that can be done to a, a kind of greater or lesser extent, or, or in a more crude way, or a more sophisticated way. Because I think in the case of just sort of popular modes, like something like a, a trashy soap opera, uh, there's plenty of foreshadowing um, of later mm. events. And if you're watching carefully, you can probably guess a lot of the time what is going to happen and who's going to have an affair with whom and all, all that kind of thing. Uh, but with a good show, of course, it's it's meant to be surprising uh but still inevitable in retrospect that is that when you yes. think back to those scenes you realize that they were pregnant with meaning yes a uh, good art has you you phrase this in a different way in your article but as i see it it's the good art is surprising but not in a kind of what the fuck way i.e <laughs> if, if you're telling a dream um in a dream sequence there can be lots of surprises but they're all what the fuck surprises um you were on the titanic and suddenly you turn around what the fuck there was your old maths teacher um and what the fuck he had like a hippopotamus with him and what the fuck suddenly the sea was made of melted chocolate and there's there's 
nothing very it's not those kinds of what the fuck surprises are not very um satisfying whereas um the kind of retrospective what seems like in retros in retrospect um was foreshadowing at the time it's not announced as woo watch later this is going to be important but at the time it passes as unimportant when you look back you realize that moment was key um that kind of surprise that then uh there's an initial surprise and then with a moment of with some reflection you realize how it how inevitable it was how it makes logical sense that's a characteristic of narrative and i think it's also why so many stories begin with later i um they don't phrase it exactly like that but they begin with later i realized that this was the crucial moment at which everything changed yeah or that's implicit in the way they begin so like all of balzac's novels begin with um a a coach or a stranger on horseback arriving in a small town and nobody really notices uh maybe no one really notices the arrival or thinks all that much of it except as a as a source for a little bit of new gossip um but it's going to of course change everything and we know that because we're familiar with narrative convention Well precisely yes you're right so we notice because we know that if it's being put in front of us it must be worth noticing because we we trust that Balzac <laughs> knows what he's doing uh and isn't just going to throw in you know completely extraneous details but it's, so uh, it's I, I mean I, yeah. well well I think yeah, something that's, that's really contract No no you're quite right yeah it, it is you're right it's a contract between the 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 author and the reader and then what what really uh blows my mind then is some works uh can be written in such a way so that they not only do the usual foreshadowing thing and may well do it quite subtly and 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 very uh skillfully but they're actually made to be reread or rewatched so that there are some uh there are some earlier scenes or earlier pieces of information that even if you're a highly alert viewer or reader you could not possibly understand until you had experienced the end and so they're not even a case of normal foreshadowing they invite the reader to go back and actually experience a different story the second or third time they they read or encounter it and one example that leaps to mind is i'm not sure if you ever read pale fire by uh vladimir nabokov but uh that that is a book that is deliberately and deliciously uh, to put together to change upon multiple rereadings Mm. Yeah, I think Nabokov's works um mostly have that have that uh characteristic. Um certainly Lolita and Illusion Defense are both very much reinterpreted on a rereading. It's the kind of thing that writers of whodunits, which is one of my favorite genres, aren't mm. able to do. They have to in the kind of uh when the detective finally works out um who 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 did it and and how they did it um which is usually also crucial they have to reveal to you what the significant details were um so they have to give give away give away the sleight of hand and say you know at this point early on i noticed that the woman's fingernails in her left hand had not been <laughs> properly trimmed um 
And sometimes they even uh, flag those details at the time of telling during the story, but they flag them among many other things they flag up so that it's a classic thing of if you want to hide a body, you should hide it in a cemetery. Um, <laughs> so you don't know, it's misdirection. So you don't know which of the things is significant. But in the end, they have to just tell it to you. And I think that's one of the reasons why whodunits, even though they often have very literary, a very literary feel, don't quite seem the same as really great literature, which doesn't, which never does that kind of um, hand-holding, because it's more pleasurable to work that out for yourself. Well, yes, and I'm, I'm glad you said this, because this is something that I, I didn't have an opportunity to get to in that article. But I do think that this is a key differentiator between what we typically call you know, popular, or and I don't say this with any, with any judgment implied, but sort of popular or lowbrow genres or, or whatever, and kind of highbrow you know art or literary genres because i think if you if you write the whodunit uh, i mean once people have read it they're unlikely to return to it and so you, you i think as an author uh, are not going to achieve a lot of longevity um some of those whodunits are, are written in a very literary style you're right but i think that the the best ones are able to hold our attention in the moment while we're reading them, because it's it's suspenseful and exciting to be trying to figure out who done it along uh, with the author, but I don't think we're going to return to those same novels uh, unless we forget completely, and so we can re-experience uh, them afresh. Which I, I think is is, and this is an observation other people have made. One of the reasons that what we call these great works of literature from the past are frequently ambiguous. One of their defining traits is that they are not they don't just wrap up perfectly neatly at the end or even if the plot lines wrap up neatly and you know they end in a marriage plot or something like that there are aspects of the the characters or the world that remain irresolvable and i think it's those ambiguities that actually give them more longevity because people can reread them uh, and and find new things all the time well they remain um tantalizingly unresolved i think if we if you know that they're irresolvable at least in my own case if i know it's irresolvable that makes me feel quite impatient um it's uh it then seems pointless to try to resolve it but they hold out this promise that the meaning can be found there that the thing can be unraveled whereas with whodunits um the really good ones can't be reread because the ending is so striking and surprising, um, the solution is so pleasing, so kind of aesthetically and meaningfully pleasing that you won't forget it. It's the sort of lesser ones where the uh, um, the resolution is less, is a little bit more contingent and arbitrary. That that when you get to my age, Jamie, get off my lawn by the way, um, you will have forgotten and can go back and reread them. So I can reread, for example, um, most of the Agatha Christie's, which I read when I was in my 20s, but I can't reread um, And Then There Were None, um, mm. the 10 Little, ten little um, Indians one, because that solution is so good that it's stuck in my mind, whereas some of the others, uh, which where the solution is just not quite as neat, 
I can go back and reread them because I have actually forgotten who did it. <laughs> well, isn't that interesting? So if you're a, a writer of those kinds of novels, by by achieving the perfect plot and the satisfying ending, you, you sign the novel's death warrant in it as far as <laughs> it being reread goes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. You do make people very um, uh, extremely evangelical about recommending it to others, though. Um, That's true. So it, it, it can spread like a virus, at least. I personally think the perfect one is A.A. A. Milne's The Red House. If you're only familiar with Milne's work for children, but you enjoy whodunits, everybody go out and read that. But unfortunately, I can never read it again because it's too perfectly, the plot is too perfect. I'll have to check that out. I do only know him from his work uh, for children. So I will I will investigate that. That sounds interesting. You had a couple of, uh, so in that, in that piece on narrative, um, one of the unusual things you do is take these insights, which I think of as literally critical insights, and A, make analogies with um, things that we know about neuroscience, and also, even more interestingly, make uh, um, hypotheses. I think it's, um, it's not quite at the level of thesis, but it's it's certainly more, um, it's more than just speculation, make hypotheses about the course of cognitive evolution. I want to give a couple of examples. Uh, you talk about the, the way in which, so for example, um, our, when we see the world, we of course don't see a complete picture. What we see is a partial picture and our brain fills in the gaps. Um, and I know I'm going to give another kind of example from music. Um, I know that when we hear timbre, for example, like we can hear the difference between a violin and a saxophone playing the same note um, because of the difference in the relative strengths of harmonics at the attack, i.e. in the very, very first micro instant of the note. Um, and then we project what we know from that onto the rest of the sound. So you can actually clip out those beginnings of notes and everything will just sound like a synthesizer. Uh, so we're, 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 we're taking what is partial and we're extrapolate, our brain is extrapolating from a sample, basically. And that's what we're doing in narrative as well. So we have little samples of how the characters are thinking and behaving. And we are extrapolating from that to create the full character and the full story in our minds. We're extrapolating from little episodes and we're creating a full kind of biography. So if, if, when I'm reading uh, something like um, The Lucian Defense, it's little scenes from his life. Here he is at seven, here he is at 12, here he is at 40, etc. Um, and nevertheless, I have a very clear sense of a person, Lujin, and his trajectory through his entire life, even though what Nabokov provides is just snapshots. It's like putting together a series of snapshots, having a flick, flip book, flipping quickly and then seeing the motion. It's, it's that kind of extrapolation. And you say that, sorry, these two points are actually not as closely connected as I hoped when I began 
this long, <laughs> long rambling digression. Um, but the second thing you do is you, uh, you, you, um, hypothesize that we, um, developed our theory of mind skills, um, earlier than, than our mental time travel skills, i.e. Our, our ability to look back in retrospect and to project forward into the future, to reminisce, remember, and to anticipate um, when we are dealing with narrative or with language or with any form of communicated meaning. And you extrapolate from the fact that, from the suggestive fact that although don't make, we can get enjoyment or a lot more enjoyment from narratives that don't make coherent sense. So they lack that kind of global coherence that would require the mental time travel of comparing what was said earlier with what was said later to see how it all adds up and coalesces. Um, so for example, we can be entertained by hearing somebody's dream or by watching Twin Peaks or, or um, some other kind of narrative work that doesn't doesn't quite all add up that doesn't lacks coherence but has agency and theory of mind and suggestiveness but we don't most people don't get enjoyment from a narrative that's absolutely coherent but lacks agents and therefore doesn't provide any exercise for our theory of mind like an instruction manual I don't know if I put that in a coherent way, so maybe you can put it more coherently. Uh, you did put that in a coherent fashion, I think. Uh, that, that's exactly right. So I, you're right that I'm sort of extrapolating and it's, it's a hypothesis. It's not something that, that has been tested beyond this or even deliberately tested or anything like that. Uh, but it is meant to be a genuine suggestion for cognitive scientists. Uh, I wasn't content with just coming up with a fundamental theory of narrative. I also wanted to make a prediction about the evolution of, of uh, the human mind as well. And yeah, it's, it, it, it to me is, is quite suggestive that we, it, it's kind of the, the, it, it seems like the theory of mind is the more primal or the more primordial, I should say, faculty. That is, that seems to be uh, present in, well, certainly in, in other animals, uh, but also uh, present in even very young infants. And uh, there's some disagreement over which parts of the brain you know, are involved in, in theory of mind versus mental time travel, and some of them are the same, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not exactly clear from the kind of physiological evidence of human brains versus other kinds of brains or anything like that. But I do think the fact that that we struggle more, as it were, with texts that engage the mental time travel and not the theory of mind is is at least dimly suggestive of, of this sequence in, in human evolution. And also, you know, if I'd had room in the article or if, if you know, there were no, there was no peer review and I was just allowed to say anything, uh, I probably would have added that, um, that this, this is, and this is an even more speculative claim, uh, <laughs> but why not, um, that it's, slightly suggestive of the late arriving theory of consciousness. That is that, that the, the kind of more um, what we call phenomenal consciousness, the kind of you know, first person subjective experience that, that we all presumably have 
the idea that that is a relatively recent event in evolution um, and, and possibly something that is unique to Homo sapiens or perhaps just to uh, certain mammals with, with very highly developed brains rather than a kind of uh, faculty that is, that is, that is present in anything with a nervous system or anything like that. Because it, it kind of suggests that, that these things like our ability to simulate other scenes and to think back to the past and project into the future suggests that those are late arriving. Whereas a theory of mind, which is just a way of kind of interacting with other creatures really, uh, is something that clearly other species do, do have at least in, in some kind of rudimentary form. So th- there's actually, quite a lot packed into that little suggestion that I'm making. Um, and, and just to, to refer back to your earlier point uh, about the, the nature of uh, narrative understanding being one that fills in the blanks or, or sort of makes extrapolations given just little samples of information. I think the, the way that I think about that is, is in the form of a constellation. You know, if you look at a constellation in the night sky, uh, it's not really there. There's no real intrinsic connection between the stars that make up a given constellation. But our brains are always looking for patterns and always looking to make connections wherever they can. And so we kind of infer some connections between these disparate points of light and then also add some flesh onto those bones with some ideas of characters or stories or gods or ancestors or whatever it is. And in a sense, we, we sort of constellate narratives as well because you're quite right even in something like uh, a novel that's written as a series of snapshots covering a long period of time it's, it's obvious that we're filling in some blanks but even in a story that purports to be closer to a, a kind of real-time description of what's happening or an exhaustive description of what's happening even something like James Joyce's Ulysses which tries to pack in everything that that uh, Mr. Bloom is thinking about on a given day even that is not truly exhaustive uh, and there are always gaps in the sequence of events that is narrated, and we have to paper over them somehow, which we do effortlessly. And uh, I, I think that the, the constellation is a good metaphor to hold in mind for understanding that general ability, which probably applies to uh, your example with the comprehension of sound as well, with the, with the music and the attack of notes. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I... um. Uh, getting back a little bit to narrative and science, um, one of the one of the subjects that you are interested in, and one of the ways in which you apply your ideas about narrative is in climate change. And I'm going to read a little bit from your a little bit from your ARIO um, uh, article here. You say that um, here we go. Um, The philosopher Stephen Gardner has called climate change a perfect moral storm. Its effects are worldwide and intergenerational, while its causes are highly technical, making it all but impossible to galvanise people to action. Even explaining it is hard. The global climate is extremely complex. International agreements are highly convoluted. The vested interests are like root systems. So our paralysis on climate change is understandable. I used to think along these lines, and I grappled with how best to frame the problem in order to engage more people. As a science communicator, I admit that my profession has failed to do that. 
so have climate scientists and to a large extent climate change campaigners. But there is one shining success among all the efforts of climate change communication, one messaging strategy that is a model of powerful storytelling and effective persuasion. Beginning in the 1980s, ExxonMobil crafted a brilliant narrative about the uncertainty of climate science and the motives of environmentalists, which resonated with journalists and politicians. Their narrative was simple, appealed to people's intuitions, and cast clear heroes and villains. And although it was fairly obviously a tissue of lies, concocted by the same professionals who did the propaganda job for the tobacco industry, a lot of influential people swallowed it whole. We can learn from this in two ways. First, we need a digestible, overarching narrative to unite disparate groups in the struggle to mitigate global warming. Second, the best candidate, I think, actually incorporates the Exxon mobile narrative and its dastardliness. Um, okay, tell us more about that. Well, the, the idea there is that, you know, the, the, the baddies have won uh, at least the kind of PR battle for climate change. Uh, ExxonMobil were the pioneers, but then the other major oil companies followed suit uh, in essentially, I mean, if, if you look into it, the, the tactics really are dastardly because they they end up funding dubious researchers and promoting their science over others and, and doing all of the dirty tricks that the tobacco industry did. And anyway, this is all very well catalogued in wonderful book by uh, Naomi Oreskes uh, and her collaborator uh, Derek Conway, I think, um, Merchants of Doubt, which which is reasonably well known. And they do a number of case studies, only one of which is climate change. And it has always annoyed me that uh, that these fossil fuel companies have set the agenda uh, just because of the obvious conflict of interest there. Uh, and I'm not a, a total climate change nut or anything like that. Uh, I do actually think there are bigger problems. I, I don't think climate change is the issue of our time necessarily, but it's a big problem. It's already causing problems in a lot of places around the world. And at the very least, I think that we, and by we I just mean anyone who who is not a, a denialist, should want to uh, come up with, with some way to just, to just simply encapsulate it, just a, an easy way of thinking about it that we can fall back on because we are cognitively lazy and so we need simple formulae or, or simple narratives to understand big complex events. And I, I suddenly just realised that climate change, although the science is intensely complex, you know, involving so many different branches of science, uh, and no one really understands all of it. I don't think anyone could really point to every part of the IPCC report on climate change and vouch for every study in there. But the kernel of what is happening is incredibly easy to understand, I think. And so my idea is just that we should stop trying to, we should almost be less nuanced when we talk about climate change and fall back on a simple way of understanding it, which just says that global warming is happening. The reason why we haven't really gotten our act together so far is partly because of the stymieing actions of ExxonMobil and the other fossil fuel companies. And so we need to start voting out politicians who are in bed with them. We need to expose their lies and, you know, switch to green energy, which is a pretty simple 
packet of uh, prescriptions. There are obviously way more details when it comes to the specifics of climate change policy. And I have various opinions on some of those versus others. You know, some people are fans of nuclear energy. Some people aren't fans. I, I'm not interested in even getting down to that level of granularity uh, because I think that at the top level, we should at least come to some basic understanding of the facts and have a way of just easily referring back to it at all times. And I think, you know, it really is true that global warming is happening. Uh, I don't know what the effects will be in the future, but I'm the science is really unequivocal on the fact that it is happening. Uh, and it is also now a matter of historical fact that uh, those fossil fuel companies did a lot of really effective work over a number of decades to take it off the agenda, particularly in the English-speaking world. And I think those two things together are the setup for a very easy-to-understand story that has heroes and villains and, you know, an almost homespun moral fable at the heart of it, which I admit is reductive and simplistic, but, again, I would say, true. <laughs> I find it more more helpful than um, uh, the environmentalist narrative, which seems to me to be um, a, a very victim-blamey because the, the kind of mainstream environmentalist narrative is climate change is your fault, Jamie, and my fault. Um, it's my fault because it's a bit nippy outside, so I have the central heating on, um, and I should just put on a bunch of sweaters and freeze here because I'm contributing to environmental degradation by, by being kind of comfortable, and that is decadent and selfish, etc., um, and what we should be doing is scaling back our individual lives and um, living in many senses more impoverished lives in order to prevent climate change. So that that kind of narrative I find really repellent because I feel that what I can do as an individual is minuscule compared to what uh, governments and corporations can do. And I also am sort of uh, unwilling to, um, I guess there's a tragedy of the commons element here, but um, I am unwilling to sacrifice basic comfort. Um, and then also, I think that I, there, there's often a, I'm, I'm often, um, I often feel that there's a doom and gloom narrative as well, which you do touch upon and, and, uh, as you say there, it's hard to know whether an apocalyptic narrative will galvanize people or paralyze them. And that might be a question of individual psychology. But in my case, I feel, yes, I agree. Everything is going to hell in the handbasket. Okay, next. Um, I, <laughs> I can't, um, when friends, for example, share articles, um, about environmental issues. I generally, if they, if they include a petition to sign or something, I go straight to the petition and I sign it, um, and unsubscribe from further mail updates. But I don't <laughs> even read the article because I feel, okay, the golden jackal is now on the endangered species list in India, for example. And my Indian friends are talking about this. And, um, I think that is golden jackals are very beautiful and I think it's a great shame if they go extinct. And so I'm happy to sign your petition that this huge 
motorway or whatever shouldn't be built right through the middle of their last breeding grounds. Um, but I also kind of don't want to read any more about it because I just find it totally depressing and I feel powerless to do very much. Right. Well, I, I have to admit I, I'm a little bit more ambivalent probably than, than you on the sort of individual responsibility versus uh you know, government responsibility or, or however you want to frame it. Uh, because, I mean, I do overall agree that uh, making the focus, you know, our individual choices over which type of cling wrap we use or, or something like that has missed the point. Like that, it, that is definitely not going to be the best way to combat the effects of climate change. Uh, however, I, I'm slightly reluctant to say that that uh, the individual element should be entirely neglected. Now, I, I deliberately don't go into this in the in the article because I say the overriding point of agreement among anyone I think who who cares about this is that well, you know, global warming is happening and and something big needs to be done about it. And the largest emitters are corporations, not individuals. And the people who are best placed to make structural change are governments and other large corporations rather than individuals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that is, again, that's the headline. Um, but I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to say individual choice is, is not relevant. And I know you're not saying it's not relevant, but mm -hmm. you are saying that that that's kind of turns you off, uh, which I get. But I, I guess it, it sort of turns me off a little bit as well. But then when I shift my gaze to other issues where I do think individual choice really matters, like, you know, I think it's important that people... Uh, vote in elections, even though one individual vote doesn't make the difference. Uh, there's sort of, you know, group effects and, and, and kind of knock on effects. And, and obviously, if everyone had that attitude, it wouldn't work. But if everyone does have the right attitude, then, then elections do work. And, and there is a tragedy of the commons element to this as well, of course, because it's very easy to defect and, uh, not take personal action if you think that's not going to go anywhere. Whereas uh, if you do take personal action and, and no one else does, then that really is pointless. So you, you kind of do need everyone to opt in at the same time. So there's a host of problems there, but I, I wouldn't want to completely throw the individual uh, behavior changes under the bus. Uh, albeit, I do think that ultimately the, 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 the main point is that governments need to do things and we need better sources of clean energy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to throw them completely under the bus either. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, uh, but, but yes, I think that there is a, a style of environmentalism which is utterly focused on a kind of moral puritanism and where also the vision, the kind of desideratum, is a future in which we um, are, we have, less expansive lives. So their wish is a kind of back to the land nature thing. Their wish is a future in which we're all just putting on more sweaters in winter and in which we're not, we're living in a separate little communities and we're not going to see each other because we're not taking trains or driving cars or uh, flying around in airplanes. Um, and I think that that is that's a very unappealing uh, vision to me. Well, um, so I'm more of yeah. a techno optimist, I, I guess. Right. Well, I'm. I'm I, I oscillate. Sometimes I'm a little bit of a techno optimist, um, although I'm not that optimistic. 
but nonetheless, <laughs> I, 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 I still, I still think we should try uh, for some technological solutions. Uh, and yeah, the, I mean that that desideratum of a, of a sort of post-capitalist scaling back to an agrarian lifestyle type world is a terrible idea. And I, I, I do wonder how many even environmental campaigners who do push that kind of vision. I wonder if they really want it uh, or if it is more of the, the moralistic motivation that, that you're alluding to there and if it's really about comeuppance uh, for others and, and really about you know other people learning their lesson or, or something like that. And I think any kind of ideology or any kind of political program that is based in resentment of others rather than some kind of positive plan uh, is... Uh, doomed. Um, and I don't mean doomed to fail. Those sorts of political programs are very popular because people do love moralism and comeuppance and resentment and all those things. Uh, but I think it's doomed uh, as, as a real hope for the future. Uh, whereas at least I guess the, the techno-optimism, uh, you know, is has a possibility, a chance uh, of working out. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think it's too uncharitable to say that it's that these kinds of more moralistic stances are necessarily based on resentment and comeuppance. So I think, you know, a friend of mine who is very much on that side of the environmentalist debate is, um, I think he sees it more as a leading by example um, and showing people, hey, you can have a happy life and this can be done without those things that you think are necessary and that are contributing to using up our resources. Um I, I take I just take a more David Deutschian kind of optimism about resources rather than feeling it's just one pot that is steadily depleting. But the thing that goes against that is the loss of species. You know, that's we need to get Jurassic Park working soon. So we can so we can <laughs> not have to worry about the golden jackal going extinct. Yeah, we need that's... a DNA bank and <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That's a no, no, that's it. That's it. Sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted. That 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 is a good one. Um, uh, because I think um, yes, the the Deutschian version of optimism um is has has the right idea behind it. You know, he has his idea that he wants to carve in stone uh the two phrases: a problems are inevitable, and b problems are soluble. Uh, which which I think sums up his brand of optimism that that there's always going to be problems, but that you know, if we kind of work hard enough or devote the right resources to them, there should always be solutions, which will in turn raise new problems, but that's the natural order of things in a progressively changing universe uh, that changes all the time as you discover new knowledge. And I, I, with the, with the species thing, you're quite right that that doesn't seem to, (laughs) that doesn't seem to fit in unless we get the, the seed banks and the Jurassic parks and, and those types of things. But that's, this is where my environmental friends really will cast me out, I think. But I'm, I'm not even sure if, if, uh, if that should be the goal. It's not even clear that uh, the resurrection of species is necessarily better than not resurrecting them. And even the environmentalists who are trying to save endangered species, they don't necessarily want to go back and restore species that were long extinct, that were extinct, let's say, before humans even got here and then you get into all these debates about what exactly biodiversity is and whether or not that's something we should be trying to maximise and what does it even mean to maximise it because you're just trying to increase the number of species or the number of individuals within species and, and so on and so forth. And it, it, uh, I think all of these 
questions that you're raising really have not been answered by the environmental movement or by most people who would call themselves environmentalists, partly because they're really difficult. I don't necessarily have answers to them, but I think most people have a kind of just sort of off the shelf version of environmentalism that if you interrogate it, it's not really clear where it will end. Uh, and, and, and I don't mean to imply that that's what your friend you were referring to is like, they sound like a, a, a principled person who's clearly trying to live by example and, and, you know, has some kind of worldview that they've probably thought about. But I think in most cases, it's, it's really hard to figure out how much we should be trying to protect endangered species some of them would go into extinct anyway do they only count as being extinct if humans do it and it gets very murky mm. i'm definitely in the favor favor of saving them all and resurrecting the ones that are already extinct well why not the I more want the to live in a giant yeah i want to live in a giant safari park <laughs> probably wouldn't last very long but nevertheless i want to see it <laughs> um so far when we've talked about narrative in relation to science, we've talked about um, science narratives that do seem to have instant implications for how we should live, as opposed to um, scientific theories or hypotheses that are revolutionary in their philosophical implications, but don't, to me at least, seem to have any implications for how we should live. And I don't know if you feel differently because one of the scientific findings which you cite, at least in the article about your the book that you're working on, as as changing our worldview in significant ways is the multi multi world theory. Um, I'm not sure if, if that's the official term for it actually. So well, it's normally the it many worlds many world theory. Yes, yeah, sorry, I knew that I got that slightly. I knew that I'd got that slightly wrong. Um, and that part of what you're describing, or you're borrowing that phrase, um, the, the semantic apocalypse, um, i.e. this is something that will change our understanding of the meaning of our lives and why things are and how things are and how we should live. And um, I find that actually very counterintuitive because... I feel as though the multi worlds, the, the many worlds theory is just irrelevant. Um, just <laughs> might be true or not, and it doesn't matter either way because I will never know. Well, this this is a, a really good question, um, and thank you for asking it, Iona, because it, it shows that you've read my stuff carefully. Um, because that that is kind of a um, a hint uh, that one of the things that will be in my book is me trying to come to terms with what the possible implications would be of something like the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which I think you're right, doesn't have an obvious uh, impact on our lives. A uh, few people are going to vote differently if it turns out the many worlds interpretation is correct versus some other interpretation of quantum mechanics or anything like that. But I'm kind of going to argue that it should change your mind about the world. And one sort of thread to follow uh, into this labyrinth is actually from David Deutsch himself, whom you mentioned earlier. And he points out in his book, The Beginning of Infinity, that uh, if the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics is accurate, it means that there are you know, a very large number of parallel universes in this 
giant multiverse structure. And there are so many of them and they uh, sort of branch or, well, according to him, they sort of divide up and, and change in proportion according to uh, how events unfold. So you decide to, uh, you know, um, uh, you you exit through the back door instead of the front door of your home or whatever it is and the possibilities branch and there's one version of Iona who goes through the back and one who goes through the front. And these two versions are as real as one another. So you're uh, one version, but there are other versions of you in parallel universes that are, that are just as metaphysically important as you. They are as physically, concretely real as you. You're not privileged you just happen to be experiencing one uh of the worlds in the many worlds but there are others like you in uh every respect except one that is that they they went through the front instead of the back door now it's a shocking thought but it's sort of so shocking and outlandish that i think most people just kind of put it in their back pocket but david deutsch points out that if we take this literally it means that um all works of fiction which narrate events that don't contravene the fundamental laws of physics are literally true accounts of some other branch of the multiverse. So if you read a book... I love that. (laughs) Yeah. It's a great idea, and I've never seen anyone follow it up, actually. Uh, And he wrote that book in 2011. Never really seen anyone go into that, and I sort of did um, because of my literary bent, I guess, and my interest in narrative. And so it does mean that, you know, Anna Karenina is real, uh, if this theory is true. The woman, Anna Karenina, not the character, there is a real woman who lived a life identical to the events narrated by Tolstoy. She's really, really real, as real as you and me. Uh, whereas Harry Potter isn't, for example, because there are events that take place in, in that story world, which do violate conservation of energy and some other fundamental laws of physics. And so according to David Deutsch, Anna Karenina is real and everything Jane Austen wrote about is real, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, a lot of works of fantasy and so forth are, n- are not. Now, that's interesting, at least. Um, but it also means that uh, when we start to look at other kinds of writing that we're interested in, we have to stop thinking of them as fiction and thinking of them instead as journalism, um, which which is a sobering thought. And, the, the I mean, this, this gets into some very deep territory, which I, I go into in more detail in the book. But that's the kind of entree into this way of thinking where a seemingly, uh, a seemingly remote finding from modern science, something that seems remote from our personal lives, uh, is actually extremely intimate once we grapple with, with its consequences for meaning and purpose so that's that's one of the ways that i investigate the the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics which might not be the right one but it's becoming the most popular one it's becoming orthodoxy among physicists and so i feel like i should therefore take it seriously as an explanation of the world and just to to connect that up with uh the other phrase you mentioned the semantic apocalypse which i should attribute by the way to r scott Backer, who is a, uh, a novelist uh, and former philosopher who has a couple of excellent blog posts. Um, he's got some professional writings on this as well in academic journals, but he's got some blog posts that are just available on his website, which explain what he means by the semantic apocalypse. And it is 
his sort of grim vision of a near future where everything we thought we knew about the world is going to be smashed uh, by modern science, especially neuroscience, but but uh, something like the many worlds interpretation would fit into this as well because it, it seems to completely undermine our basic intuitions, not only of what the world is like, which science has been doing for a long time, but even what the nature of the self is because it would turn out if that one's true that there are innumerable doppelgangers of ourselves uh, in universes parallel to ours that uh, would seem to deserve just as much moral consideration as we do, um, which is, is I think, something that's as sobering a thought as you want to let it be. <laughs> the Rawlsian multiverse. Maybe, yes. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, um, it's an interesting thought experiment. It still feels as though it doesn't affect me. Um, I mean, my boyfriend actually uses this as an argument a lot. So if I say, if I'm disappointed in something that we don't have, he says, don't worry, there's a, you know, in a, in a parallel universe, there's an Iona and Stephen who have that thing. So we should be just as content as if it were us. I, I find <laughs> that utterly unconvincing, <laughs> unpersuasive. Yes. Well, uh, it, it's good rhetoric, though. I, I, I give your boyfriend full points for um, for drawing on, on whatever he can to, <laughs> to make those arguments. Um, well, again, David Deutsch uh, does open up a little crack in terms of how uh, the many worlds can affect one another. So they're not totally, according to his interpretation, they're not totally isolated. And so there may in the future be a way for... Uh, parallel universes to indirectly influence one another um, through some very specific modes of communication that he outlines. But he also thinks that with the advent of serious quantum computing, uh, the way that will actually work, if his interpretation of what's going on with quantum physics is accurate, is that effectively a quantum computer will be leveraging the computational power stored in parallel across other copies of itself in other branches of the multiverse. And so if quantum computing comes online, which it sort of looks like it is and may well in the next couple of decades, that would be borrowing the resources of our partner universes to conduct computation and calculations within this one. Um, so there are, there are some practical ways in which the, the universes can mix, uh, it would seem, but the jury's out on that. And it still doesn't help with, um, you know, uh, thinking about what what you're missing out on in this universe. Yeah. Um, so it feels so. You know, Philip Pullman's and Adrian Tchaikovsky's novels might be part of um, the corpus of literature that is literally true somewhere in the within the many worlds. Uh, because he's you, you know because he's strictly because those uh, are abiding. Based on, yes. yes. Abiding uh, by the basic rules of physics, but positing a many world scenario within the, within those novels. Right. I see. I haven't read those novels, but I guess, yeah, D David Deutsch would, would, would say that as long as, you know, you run a, uh, your thumb, you run a finger through them um, and, and, and interrogate every event that happens, as long as none of them violate laws of physics, then it has happened somewhere at some time. Yeah. Um, Jamie, I'd like to ask you one last question, if I may. I know I've al you've already given me a lot of your time. 
in in the messages that we wrote to and fro to each other in preparation for this podcast, you said that you are at bottom a literary theorist and that you have many strong but outre opinions about how and what to read. And I am <laughs> I was very intrigued by that. Ooh, well, so um, please give me uh, hit me with one of them. Gosh, I'm not I'm not sure where to begin. I mean well well apart from recommending people read books that are literally true somewhere in some branch of the multiverse, uh I I I mean I, I've been conducting some reading experiments over the last few years actually. Uh so I've been doing some things like um uh for several years now I haven't read a novel by a white man uh in an attempt to open my understanding to to uh worlds and lives that are totally unlike my own. I realized that for a while I I counted up all the novels I'd read and I thought, how many have I read that are about English men who have gone to Cambridge or Oxford, let's say, or about uh, American men who are, you know, from New York or something like that. And I just realized that I'd, I'd sort of gotten enough of that life experience, I think. And so uh, I've been doing that, which is just, I'm not sure what effect that has had on me, but it's had some kind of effect. Uh, so, so I've been, I'm also a regular auditor of my own reading and I'm constantly going back to look at what I have read to try and decide whether or not it was worth reading and then use that to inform my my future reading choices so I do all sorts of things like that but in terms of my kind of hardcore literary opinions I'm trying to think of what would be the most controversial I mean I guess my 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 most controversial idea uh comes back to this this central question of meaning uh which is what my book is about and what focuses all my thought and which goes back to that semantic apocalypse we mentioned earlier, which is scary if you read about it, but essentially it's saying that uh, modern brain science suggests that there can be no semantic meaning. That is nothing that is said or written or thought uh, or symbolized or anything like that. So words, speech, symbols, paintings, ideas, none of these things that we might think of as representational media None of them can be about anything else, that there is no actual way for anything in this universe to be about anything else in the universe. The idea of aboutness itself is kind of ruled out by our contemporary understanding of how the brain works and, and also how uh, you know fundamental particles work and things like that. When you add it all up, it doesn't look like there's any room for aboutness in there. And so how that uh, rather shocking thought that a lot of people would think leads to complete nihilism uh, plays out for my reading habits is that it means that when, when when I think about what is good, and I'm aware that I just use the phrase think about, there's, there's really no way around it, uh, what kinds of novels are good, I've become a lot less interested in what books are about. That is, I've become a lot less interested in what the kind of subject matter or content of a novel is. Um, and I, I've sort of decided that maybe it's it's kind of irrelevant and it's maybe just a little bit of colour uh, that is added onto the canvas but is not really the most important thing to read for. And so I've become much more interested in what we would call formal characteristics of a novel, uh, which is a little bit old-fashioned now to say that you're a formalist, to say that the most important thing about a novel or a poem is uh, how it's written and its use of language or maybe even just the sound of 
the words when you read them aloud or something like that. But I've kind of ended up going down that road because of this rather extreme view that what we call semantic meaning uh, can't really uh, be real or it can't be real in the way that we intuitively think. It must be in some senses illusory and an artifact of our uh, cognition and the way our brains evolved. And so what that means is that I've become a kind of ultra conservative in terms of the canon of books that I read and recommend. Um, and I've basically decided to pretty much just reread novels that I already thought were great, uh, ones that I thought were sort of unequivocally great because they tend to be uh, those sort of highly uh, artful, formal novels where it's more about the language and more about the formal techniques and the poetry and, and, and all that sort of thing rather than uh, what they're about and rather even than the story despite being a narrative theorist. And so I mentioned Nabokov before. Uh, I end up circling back to a few key dead white men like like Nabokov and uh, some recent authors who I'm a really big fan of like uh, um, Marilyn Robinson and uh, that uh, great Italian pseudonymous novelist uh, Elena Ferrante and a few others like that. So that's, I mean, I've ended up giving just, you know, fairly standard book recommendations there, but the reasoning behind it is fairly radical and um, and was certainly going to get me kicked out of any contemporary literary departments. Mm. Those, those things do seem to uh, contradict each other. Your desire to read fiction by that's not by white men so that you can, so that the books are about, quote unquote, things outside your experience and your interest in formal structure. Also, also, um, you know, I'm, I haven't read the uh, Elena Ferrante books and the main reason is that with a very few exceptions, I, um, you know, books that I think are, are, can't kind of can't be avoided if you are serious about literature. Um, mm -hmm. Like, you know, you have to read War and Peace and Anna Karenina, even though you don't speak Russian. Nevertheless, I try to avoid reading things in translation um, because I think that then you're not reading the author's language, you're reading the translator's language. And uh, um, unless it's a, you know, it could be a very brilliant translator. So the translator's language itself could be very pleasure, highly pleasurable. But in general, I want to avoid that. So um, I don't know. There seem like several contradictory <laughs> impulses that you have. I will... Again, I thank you for that question because you you really put your finger on a, on a contradiction that I am struggling with. Uh, so you're quite right that uh, the 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 focus away from content towards form completely runs against this idea of reading books written by different kinds of people to somehow absorb or or um, you know take on their their subject perspective or whatever you want to call it. Um, that's true. All I can say is that uh, I'm not a consistent person necessarily, but also that uh, I guess I feel like I've already covered all of the main uh, dead white men. Um, so I, I, I feel like I've got the best ones and I can just revisit them. I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time trying to find more of them uh, or second tier ones or anything like that. And as for the uh, reading of, of non-white authors and female authors in, in contemporary fiction, 
I mean, I guess what I'm hoping is that uh, even uh, the formal characteristics or something about the novel will be different in virtue of them being uh, somehow different from the the kind of dominant type of person who has been writing our literature in the past. And so there, there is still an escape clause for me where I, where I might say that, well, some of these, these uh, modern authors, you know, it doesn't matter what they're writing about or even necessarily who they are, but they might have a different way of writing or might even imbue the work with different formal characteristics that will still be offering something new to me. And then finally on that, that point about translation, I absolutely agree with you. I also typically avoid translations because I think it's kind of a bit of a joke uh, that you're missing out on whatever the whatever the original language was and all of the wonders that were no doubt present in it. Uh, but there are exceptions and, and, and sometimes the translation is better and a work of art on its own. I think that the Kinkhead Weeks uh, translation of Proust, for example, is whether or not it's an accurate translation, it stands alone as a kind of extraordinary work of literature. Um, and the, the Ferrante novels, I recommend them to you because whoever translated them, they, they did a fantastic job uh, of writing some really, really top draw novels. No idea how faithful they were to the Italian though. I could, I could carry on for quite a long time, but I think that might be a good <laughs> place to wrap up. Um, and sure. uh, uh, is, there an, is there anything that you have been sort of itching to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? Oh gosh. Um, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, I mean, there's a lot more I can say about my book, but really it's, it's, I mean, you've been very kind in indulging me on that already. And there's the, the, the point is to write the damn thing. So that's where people (laughs) can find out more details. Um, no, I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's anything, um, in particular, no, uh, we, we've covered a lot of ground, and 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 again, I thank you for for indulging me and and um, actually reading those things I've written and, and quoting them back to me and and understanding it as well. I'm I'm sort of shocked that uh, podcast interviewers often don't read people's books. Um, <laughs> I heard a very embarrassing BBC interview with Tom Chivers. Um, so Tom Chivers, who's a former guest of this podcast, and yes. his book is called um, The AI Does Not Hate You, which is a, for those who haven't listened to that episode, um, the title, and who are not familiar, the title is a quotation from Eliezer Yudkovsky, um, the rationalist, and it's the full, um, uh, the full phrase is, the AI does not hate you, the, a- the AI does not love you, the AI does not hate you, you are simply made of atoms that could be put to better use. And the interviewer began by saying, so, Tom, you have written a book about how we should not be afraid of a- of the implications <laughs> of the development of AI. And his book is entirely about the dangers of superintelligence, <laughs> or <laughs> l- largely about that. And um, I never want that to be me. <laughs> right. Just profound French shaman. Um, if you're going to interview <laughs> someone, the least you can do is read their work and think about it a little bit um that's yes. the, that's the bare minimum <laughs> well, I, well i applaud you it's, uh, that would sort of be like yeah mr orwell you've written a book about some farm animals or yeah um <laughs> yeah yes. well, well again well again i thank you for doing your due diligence it, it I, I think a lot of people don't do it so i it, it is it is virtuous 
And what I'm asking all my podcast guests um, is bearing in mind that I want to interview a variety of people. Um, can you think of someone uh, whose work is unlike your own, who's not in the same area as you, but who you would recommend I interview? Oh, gosh, I'm a little bit on the spot there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Well, I should have I, sent this question to you in advance. No, no, that's that's fine. I um, look, look, a person who just popped into my head uh, is, I don't know if you've heard of the, the wonderful historian Jennifer Hecht, who wrote, no. well, she wrote a book called Doubt a History, uh, which is, I think, just the book to read if you are a non-believer or if you're not a non-believer. It is. Um, it, it was the book that should have gotten some of the attention that books by uh, Hitchens, Dawkins and Harris got back in the kind of atheist boom uh, 10 or 15 years ago. It's the history of atheism, essentially. Um, and mm -hmm. she also wrote a wonderful book about sort of arguing the case against suicide from a secular perspective. Uh, and she's just a brilliant historian, also a poet. Uh, she's a great speaker and um, a, a really uh, someone who's influenced me a lot, but uh, whom I find a lot of people don't know, which I think she'd make a great guest. Wonderful. Well, the good thing about asking this question is that even if um, I can't persuade her to come on the podcast, it's an excellent recommendation for everybody, something to go away with, to read um, and investigate more. Thank you so much, Jamie, for joining us. Well, thank you, Iona, so much for having me. It was a thrill uh, and my pleasure. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.